Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bully. So from Luke 16, Jesus is speaking. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your life you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, in the early 2000s, Sandra and I lived with our children on the east side of the Atlanta metro area near a town called Loganville. Our oldest son, Ian, got involved with the Civil Air Patrol at age 11. Now, the Civil Air Patrol, or CAP, was created just before World War II to train potential pilots. And since the war, it has also been tasked with finding downed aircraft around America. Teens receive a good ground school education and eventually are able to begin pilot training. After a couple of months, Ian was given the opportunity to go up in a small Cessna with another kid and a couple of experienced pilots. So I took him to the local airport, which had an active parachuting club. 
I, it was about 11 in the morning. I met with the pilots, confirmed they'd be back around 3 o'clock, and walked back to my van. And on the way, I noticed that a big guy wearing a jumpsuit with a parachute pack was receiving instructions on how to determine his altitude from a watch-like device on his arm and pull the ripcord appropriately. The woman who was training him kept saying, watch it, when it gets to 7,000, pull the cord. When it gets to 7,000, pull the cord. When it gets to 7,000, pull the cord. Apparently this was going to be his first solo parachute jump. And then I went home for lunch with Sandra and the other children. Well, about 2.30, we all came back in the van. We didn't want Ian to have to wait around. But something disturbing happened as we were nearing the turnoff to the airport. A couple of fire trucks and an ambulance came zooming past us, sirens and lights blazing. And we noticed that they took the airport exit. And Sandra was beginning to get very worried about Ian at this point, as I'm sure all you mothers would. We drove into the airport, and we weren't allowed to go to the cap hangar. Between us and the hangar, there were parked the fire trucks and the ambulance with about a dozen men dressed in yellow response suits. I walked up to the crowd, leaving Sandra and the children in the van, and as I approached, I noticed one of the pilots coming towards me with Ian. But as I looked toward them, I caught a glimpse around the ambulance where they were loading the body of a large man onto a stretcher. It was the guy who had gone up for his first solo parachute jump a couple hours earlier, the guy I'd been watching rehearse. Speaking with the pilot, I found out that they had returned 45 minutes earlier, but they were held at the hangar until just a couple minutes before we arrived. He told me that the guy had never pulled his ripcord, apparently waiting far too late. And so he'd hit the ground hard with fatal effect. He'd waited until it was too late to try for his parachute. Ian and I returned to the van, much to Sandra's relief. And then we drove somewhere for a picnic or something. I really don't remember what we did that afternoon. You know that guy, he'd, ha he'd been given this deadline, 7,000 feet, pull the pull the ripcord. But it was kind of a soft deadline. You know, it would have worked just as well at 5,000 feet or 3,000 feet, but he had waited too long until it was too late. In our world around us, the world is filled with many soft deadlines. We're asked to be at the party at 7 o'clock and the hostess is happy when we show up 10 minutes late. We're told we're simply fashionably late. We're told to have our homework turned in by Friday at 5 p.m. and then the T-Shore professor allows us to turn in the homework by Monday morning at 8 a.m. Our boss tells us that he needs a report by 2 p.m. in the afternoon, but just sighs when we email him the report at 4 o'clock. Our bank tells us we need to pay the mortgage by the end of the month, but gives us a grace period until the 5th of the month. We're told to take our medicine at the exact same time every day, but when we call the office to tell them that we're three hours late, the office nurse just says, well, take it now, you'll be okay. Even the IRS is into this act of giving us a deadline that's kind of soft. For example, April 15th to file and pay our taxes, but you know if we're late, they only fine us about a percent every month. They set up payment plans, they charge us some interest, a little bit of penalty, but that hard deadline of April 15th is actually pretty soft if we're willing to pay that small penalty. 
as long as we appear to be trying to comply with the laws. Everyone gives us second and third chances. Almost all deadlines are pretty soft deadlines, and so many people get in the habit of being fashionably late for everything. It's always been this way, really. It's not something new. Jeremiah, the prophet in our Old Testament reading from his book, has been preaching to the leaders of Israel for many years that bad things are going to happen if they continue to worshiping other gods than the Lord. Jeremiah has told them that time is running out, but the general attitude of the kings and the elders of the city is that Jeremiah has become a fanatic. He's overly concerned about what God has said to him even that Jeremiah may have become just a little bit crazy listening to a God that sat and watched and not done anything against Jerusalem for centuries. But they said, God will always protect us. Jeremiah told us that God's patience was wearing thin. But God had never destroyed Jerusalem, so why worry? In fact, maybe God wasn't even real, some of them thought. And so as the Babylonian army approached that day, the leaders began to panic. All of a sudden, they forgot that Jeremiah and other prophets had been calling upon the leadership for decades to repent, to rethink their relationship with God. Instead, all they could see was the danger of the approaching army. The Babylonians surrounded the city. They cut off all food and traffic going in and out of the city, and the people of Jerusalem freaked out. For they could see that this flesh and blood army of the Babylonians was surrounding them. And that their silent sort of trust in God's protection just vanished. Of course, Jeremiah had told them that God was no longer going to protect the city. In fact, Jeremiah had told them that the city would fall and the kings and nobles would be taken away prisoners to Babylon. But they had not believed him. Sort of trusting in God's protection, but not changing their ways. For in fact, they simply trusted that they could do whatever they wanted and nothing bad would happen. That trust evaporated the day that the Babylonian army came to Jerusalem. And now they believed that all was lost, but God had more words for Jeremiah to speak. And so while Jeremiah was being held prisoner by the king of Jerusalem, held in a courtyard, probably so he couldn't panic the people of Jerusalem with his claims that the city was going to be destroyed, the word of God came to Jeremiah that his uncle would come to him and want Jeremiah to buy a field from him. After all, why own a piece of land when the enemy is occupying it? Jeremiah was to buy the land, write up two deeds, seal them in a jar so they'd last a long time. Jeremiah did this and prophesied God's word so that although the city would fall to the Babylonians, although many people would be taken into slavery and exile in Babylon, one day the people of Jerusalem would return and live once again under God's rule in peace and safety. One day Jeremiah or his descendants would be able to own that land again and that deed would be important. But for now it was too late for the leaders of Jerusalem to change their ways. They had been warned repeatedly. True, God had saved the city several times in the past, but now God's patience had run out and God had removed the supernatural protection of the city. The city was lost and the surviving leaders would be exiled to Babylon. And after centuries of warning and God's second and third and fourth chances, it was now too late. 
The 70-year-old Babylonian exile had begun. It would be 70 years before people would return to Jerusalem. You know, much the same thing happened during and after Jesus' ministry. Jesus told anyone who would listen that the temple and the city would be destroyed, and it would be soon. Jesus told them instead to follow him. And about 40 years later, in August of 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple and the city and killed tens of thousands of Jews. In 132 AD, another war led to a half million Jewish deaths just directly from the war and the destruction of all the Judean villages and the banning of the Jews from Jerusalem. Many millions more died from famine and disease. And the Jews were not allowed to return for over 1,700 years until about 1895. A Jewish government didn't rule the land until 1948. And in Jerusalem, it took until 1967. The temple still has not been rebuilt, and the temple site is occupied by that large golden-domed Muslim mosque. Once again, time ran out, and it was too late to repent and follow God the way he asked. Shortly after speaking to his disciples about the impossibility of serving both God and money, as he did last week, Jesus continues with today's gospel lesson. He said there was a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury every day. At his gate, some people had laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores, and the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. You know, in Jewish tradition at this time, Abraham was, a, was in a good place of rest as the man who believed God's promises and was declared righteous by God. The rich man also died and was buried. But he went to Hades, which was the Greek name for the underworld, similar to what we would call hell, where he was in torment. The rich man looked up, saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side, so he called to him, Father Abraham, would you have pity on me? Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and, and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied that, son, in your lifetime you received good things, but Lazarus got bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in agony. And besides, between all this, there's a great chasm that keeps me from going to you and you from going to me. So the rich man said, well, okay, send Lazarus to my family because I've got five brothers. Tell them, warn them, so they won't come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. They said to them, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In this story that Jesus told, we should notice that the rich man lives in luxury, but does not do anything to help the beggar, Lazarus. There's an implication that Lazarus doesn't even get the scraps from the rich man's table. Even the dogs who presumably get those scraps and are well fed, they then come and lick the sores of Lazarus. The dogs you see show Lazarus more kindness than the rich man. A couple other things to be noted. First, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, living comfortably, eating well. This is not sinful. 
Just as being wealthy is not proof that God is happy with your life. But there is a second point that Jesus is making here. That's that it's not simply enough to avoid hurting people. You see, the rich man here sins because he has plenty, but does not help his poor neighbor. He doesn't give him a place to stay. He doesn't give him even the table scraps. He doesn't call for a physician to help the poor man. No, the sin of the rich man is that he has plenty and does not help the man who's been laid by his gate by friends because he's so desperate he has to beg. Lazarus, you know, couldn't even walk to the gate but had some kind souls to put him there where he could beg from the rich man's visitors as they came and went. And yet the rich man, who Jesus, you notice, doesn't even dignify with a name, he ignores Lazarus. They both die. And here we see that the rich man did know of Lazarus, for he spots him beside Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, the man whom God gave a promise to, the man who believed God and was then declared righteous, righteous by God. The rich man is now being burned and is thirsty. He asks Abraham, to send Lazarus to bring him a bit of water, even a drop, but Abraham says that justice has been served. The rich man had received good in his earthly life. Lazarus had struggled, but now Lazarus would be well treated and the rich man would be in agony. Besides that, there's a great gap there, a big chasm, a big empty hole between the good place and the bad place so no one could cross over. Well, the rich man accepted this and asked Abraham to send Lazarus instead to the rich man's five brothers to warn them about their eternal destiny. And Abraham replies that they have the Old Testament. That's enough. The rich man says a man who returns from the dead will have more power to persuade. If Lazarus returns, they might repent, they might change their minds about their actions and God. But Jesus says that Abraham, full of wisdom, says that they won't, if they won't listen to the Old Testament. They won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. How prophetic a statement. Did you notice that Lazarus, which is the name of the man whom Jesus will raise from the dead, that's the same name as the poor man in this story, the one whom the rich man wants to be sent to his brothers. And do you remember from the story of Lazarus when Jesus raised him from the grave? the Pharisees began to call for the death both, both of Jesus and of Lazarus. They didn't turn. They called for his death. And then the death and resurrection of Jesus happened and his testimony, the testimony of the Son of God himself coming back from the dead has not been enough for many people to repent, to change their minds about God and their behavior. For countless millions throughout the ages, it's already been too late for them to repent and choose to follow Jesus. And now they're beside the rich man in the place of torment. Folks, much is made of the love of God, His patience, His loving kindness. But there is something to be said that that patience is not eternal. Multiple times in the Bible, stories are told of how God had patience, gave second, third, fourth chances, forgave even 70 times, seven times, 490 chances, but then even God's patience runs out. The flood came and wiped out everyone except Noah and his family. For everyone else, when the rain began to fall, it was too late. 
the Israelites, escaping from Egypt, refused to follow their wise, God-trusting leaders into the promised land. So God chose to have them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the fearful ones died and a new generation of leaders was ready to follow God. For those fearful of following God, it was too late. In the book of Judges, new generations repeatedly forgot about God, were conquered by neighboring groups, finally had to call on God for help, and God sent men and women to rescue them. And for those who turned away, though, it was too late. The kings of Israel repeatedly turned to other gods. Those who chose to follow God were rewarded with strength and peace, and those who worshipped other gods were warned and died. And eventually, first the northern tribes and then Jerusalem itself were sent into a 70-year exile. For the people of Jerusalem and their leaders, it was too late. And centuries after they returned, first John the Baptist and Jesus returned with a message to follow God and God's commands, as well as to follow Jesus. And some did, but most didn't. And in 70 A.D. it was too late because the temple was destroyed. And a second chance even was given. But in 132 A.D. it was too late because the Jews were banished from Jerusalem for thousands of years. Over the centuries since, in countries around the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached. People have been told that God loved the people of this world so much that God sent His Son to die in our place to pay the price for the sins of each of us that all we needed to do was choose to follow Jesus and His teachings. But for untold millions of people, it was always something that they'd think about one day. That one day they'd quit following their own path and choose to follow Jesus that one day they'd stop worrying so much about wealth and comfort and decide to repent, to change their ways of thinking about Jesus and change their lives. And so for those untold millions of people, including hundreds and thousands who died yesterday, it is too late. The Apostle Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, gives us pearls of wisdom that discuss these things, what to pay attention to. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and, and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul isn't condemning wealth, but he is condemning the desire to become rich. And we should put this particularly in the context of, whom, of when we know of people that our wealth can help, both in this world and eternally, and we do nothing. Paul continues, but you... Man of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides with us everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, 
to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul understood that there is a life that most people live, but there's also something more, a life that is truly life. There have been wealthy and powerful men who realized this, like Andrew Carnegie, who gave away most of his millions to further education and the arts, Bill Gates, who quit Microsoft years ago to devote the rest of his life to improving medicine around the world, and Jimmy Carter, who stepped away from politics to build homes with Habitat for Humanity and to help bring fighting sides together at the Carter Center, and others who have donated billions to help other people. But there are also many people who simply focus on sitting on their pile of cash and letting that grow larger and their comforts grow larger every year while people suffer down the road from them. You know, people suffer for many reasons. Some suffer from illnesses and injury, but more suffer from loneliness and depression, from addictions, from, home, from hopelessness. Healing comes in many forms, and we are asked to bring that healing to them through the words of Christ. You may not be able to cure cancer, but you can pick up the phone and call someone who's lonely and tell them about what the kids did in church this morning. You may not be able to fix a broken hip, but you can bring a plate of cookies to a depressed neighbor, even if you have to buy it at Sam's Club, and tell them of your joy when you read the Psalms. You may not be able to get someone to put down heroin, but you can mail someone a card or a letter which God will use to stop a homeless neighbor from giving up because you mentioned that God loves them and has great plans for them in the future. And then again, maybe you can give someone a job or connect them with a job. Maybe you can teach a child a useful skill or a positive way of thinking about things or take an elderly friend to a doctor's appointment. Or you may be able to cure cancer or addictions or do surgery. Or you may be simply able to tell a stranger in line about how Jesus changed your life 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that's why you have such a smile on your face today. And who knows, maybe they'll ask you some more questions about the God who, lived, who loved us so much he sacrificed his only son you might lead them to turn to Jesus. And then, then it won't be too late for them. So come forward during our song to pray for those people you know are lost, because if you don't pray for them, who will? You might even want to slip in a prayer for yourself. So let's sing Rescue the Perishing, number 591.
Grant Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.